Welcome to this week's sermon from Amblecote Christian Centre. So I hope you've um, been enjoying our Luke series. It's our last but one in the series. We're nearly there. We're going through um, a passage in Luke that's co- uh, often known as Luke's travel narrative. And it's been an interesting ride. I don't know about you, but I often find the Gospels are an interesting read. You find that? Sometimes, like Paul's letters, you sort of know roughly where they're going. You can kind of track with it. The Old Testament can be hard at times, but you sort of know where it's coming from. Sometimes I sort of think I've got my head around the Gospels, and then you read them again, and something hits you, you know, and you think, I didn't expect that. Um, so I hope you've enjoyed that, and you're sort of what I call a roller, roller coaster ride through Luke, parts that are lovely and encouraging and parts that are massively challenging. Uh, but it's good to do, and it's been really good to do as a church family. Today we're going to look at another challenging passage. So you up for that? Fantastic. So turn in your Bibles, if you've got them with you, to Luke 14. Uh, And we're going to look at verses 25 uh, to 35. Some of you who've been in church a long time will know um, this passage. This is one of the passages that is commonly known as the cost of discipleship. And I'll read it and then we'll get stuck in and see what God wants to say to us uh, and to you personally as well this morning. So it says these words. Now great crowds accompanied him. That's Jesus. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. If not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So, therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Well, there you go. I'll leave it there. Is that okay? Should we just finish there? That's good. Yeah, some of the most challenging passages in the Bible are words spoken by Jesus himself. Don't know about whether you've come across these um, some secular commentators, thinkers, and even some Christian teachers who try and sort of say that Jesus was this, you know, um, love everybody, get along with everybody, nice and kind sort of person, and it was the church that has added in the high demand of Christianity. Have you come across that kind of teaching before? And sometimes I think I'm not sure whether these people have actually ever read the words that Jesus himself says in the Gospels. And um, we've come across some of these in this series, haven't we? You know, we've, we've heard that Jesus says, I came to bring division to the earth, not peace. 
We hear, you know, unless you repent, you will perish. This is not gentle Jesus, meek and mild. And sometimes these things can be really difficult for us to hear. But as followers of Jesus and those who are seeking to teach the way of Jesus, we cannot only take part of what Jesus says. We can't just pick the parts that suit our lives, that fit our narrative, that we like, and miss the others. Just because we find some of these teachings tough and they mess with our heads doesn't mean we can avoid them or should hide from them. And that's one of the challenges that we find in our teaching, in our commitment to teach through the Bible, is at some point you get landed with this. And it is a challenge. But we have to remember also that Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and life to the full. Jesus also said, come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. And Jesus famously said that he came not for the well, but for the sick. Jesus comes to those that know they're not good enough, as Vanessa said before, those that know they don't hit the mark. Jesus is the the doctor, the divine doctor that comes to heal those who need it. And when you go to your doctor, if you've got a good doctor, you don't just take part of the medication. If the, the doctor prescribes you this medication and this medication, you don't say, well, I'll have that one, but I don't really t- like the taste of that one, so I'll miss that one out. If you've got a good doctor, that is. What you do is you take the whole prescription together, and together that prescription is what the doctor says will make you well. Jesus is the perfect doctor, and he prescribes this medicine, and he prescribes this medicine. And if we're going to have life to the full, if we're going to know the life of Jesus, if we're going to experience his love in the way that we've been talking about this morning, we have to take the whole of the prescription of medication. So I believe that we have to trust Jesus when we hear these words. And it's almost like we have to get through them and come out the other side. We can't just avoid them. You know, it's like that old thing. We sing that to our kids, you know, going on a bear hunt. These are words, you can't get over it, you can't get under it, you can't get round it. We're going to have to go through it. And some words of Jesus are like, we've just got to get through it. And at the other side, we will understand more about what Jesus is saying and find out the life that he's bringing through his commands and his teaching. But it's funny I say this because um, I was talking to someone in this church family, I won't say who, but they'll begin to smile in a while. I was saying, you know, I was making this exact point that some of Jesus' teachings are the hardest to understand and get your head around in the Bible. And I quoted this passage, and I said, you know, it's like in a few weeks' time I'm teaching on, you know, that we're to hate our mother and our father. And this person turned around and said, oh, no, actually, that's one of the uh, bits of Jesus' teaching that I find quite easy, actually. Which, of course, they were joking. Um, They were joking, but... It raises an interesting point, isn't it? Is this Jesus telling us that we're to be horrible and hate our family? Well, that's why I think it's important that we begin with what Jesus is not saying before we move on to what Jesus is saying. So Jesus is not saying in these words that we are to literally hate and be horrible to our kids, to our wives, to our husbands, to our parents. Whenever we read or or look at the scriptures, you guys know this by now, we should look at it in context. We have to look at the verse in the context of what's around it. We have to look also in the context of the, the whole of the book, what's generally being said. And we have to, of course, 
look at the scripture in the context of the whole big story of the Bible. And when we do this, we can see that clearly Jesus is not giving us permission to be horrible to our families. Jesus himself quotes Exodus 20, verse 12, part of the Ten Commandments that says, Honour your father and mother. And you won't need me to go through all of the instances where Jesus says, you know, to love your neighbor, to be kind, to be graceful, to forgive our enemies, all of those things again and again and again. The big story, the big picture is to love those around us, to honor our parents and love those uh, in our lives. So let me say this clearly, just in case I get misquoted at some point. Jesus is not giving you permission to hate your family. I'm sorry if you'd like that, but that's not what's going on here. And Jesus is also not saying that we're to hate ourselves. So we are more aware now, perhaps more aware than ever, of the massive challenges around mental health. People, you know, that struggle with um, depression, uh, self-loathing, self-harm, all these kind of challenging mental health issues. And we need to understand that Jesus comes to heal these challenges, not endorse them or say that they're good things. He comes to release us from beliefs about ourselves that are harmful to us. So Jesus is not saying here that we should hate our body, hate our lives, or anything like that. But what is Jesus saying then? Jesus says these words, If anyone comes to me, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What does Jesus mean by that? So what we're going to do, as ever, is look at what Jesus teaches around these verses to help us understand, okay, what is Jesus trying to get at? And what is he trying to help us to grasp in this teaching? Um, what he gives around this is a couple of images, or um, I've called them mini parables. They're sort of very, very tiny parables to help us grasp uh, what he is saying. And we did this a few years ago now, actually. But um, a parable is, I think a good definition of a parable, is an earthly story that conveys or teaches an eternal reality. Okay, So an earthly story that conveys or teaches an eternal reality. So Jesus is teaching something uh, of an eternal or kingdom of God reality, a truth that is in the kingdom. And in order that we can grasp it and understand it, not just with our heads, but that he might draw us to him with our hearts, what he does is he gives these parables, these things that we have to try and, you know, it's more than just information. Here's the facts. It's about our hearts reaching out and grasping what Jesus is getting at and drawing us to himself. So the first example or mini parable that Jesus uses in this passage is the building of a tower. And he basically says, summarized, don't start building a tower unless you know you have enough money to complete it. Otherwise, everyone's going to laugh at you. That's my summary of it. That's basically what Jesus says. It's pretty logical advice, I think. If I started building a tower, you know, and I built some foundations and I put in the next sort of floor, and then I just stopped. You might come up to me and say, Tim, what's going on with your building? I said, oh, I haven't got enough money to finish it. 
you would say, well, that's a bit silly. You should have really worked out how much money it takes to finish the building before you started building it. So it kind of makes sense, I think. So applied to Jesus' teaching, it basically communicates this. Don't become a disciple without first counting the cost and valuing the cost of what that decision will be for your life. So we need to understand there was this huge buzz around Jesus at the time. Like this Jesus was smashing it. You know what I mean? Like there was healings going on. There was thousands of people being fed. There was, he was challenging the religious system. Um, you know, there was this thought that oh, maybe this guy can take out Rome. And this, this was, it was happening. Jesus was the happening person at this time. And I would imagine that it would be those going, hey, this is, this is good, you know. This, this man, I'm going to follow him. I want to get some of this. I want to get some of this miraculous stuff. I want to get some of this, you know, free food. I want to get some of this challenging those Pharisees. I've never liked them anyway. And there's this kind of buzz around it. And Jesus' message is, well, hang on, hold on. Don't just sign up without first counting the cost. There is a cost to following Jesus. And we know, don't we, that there were those that lost friendships, lost relationships with their family. Um, there were even those that lost their very lives because they chose to follow Jesus. And that still happens today. We heard a few weeks ago from uh, Open Doors. And we know that all over the world, many, many people are making the decision to follow Jesus and therefore losing their connections with their family, losing their jobs, losing, at times losing their own lives as well. So Jesus is kind of saying here, don't just jump on the bandwagon thinking everything's going to be great. Don't just sign up for the good times, but count the cost of the whole tower before you start to build. The second parable is an interesting one. It says, uh, Jesus says that if there was a king, imagine there was this king, and uh, he's got 10,000 men, um, and he sees that 20,000 men are coming against him to fight against him. And Jesus says that he must first consider, these words, whether he is able to go out against them or not. Well, what is the most likely outcome if a king has 10,000 men and he goes out against 20,000 men? What's the most likely outcome? He's going to lose. He's going to die, yeah? That's probably, if you look at it mathematically, two to one odds, the chances are, or there's a good chance, that he is going to lose. So when Jesus says whether he is able, then what he's saying is in this parable, this king must really think through, is this battle worth it? Is this battle worth losing his life, perhaps, or all of his men, or his livelihood, or his castle, whatever it is? Is it really worth it. And I don't necessarily think we have to automatically think that this parable is sort of talking about us physically losing our lives. You know, I've been thinking about that a bit. Of course, as we've said, there are those that are called to give their life and we, you know, but none of us really know whether we would ever get anywhere near giving our life up for the kingdom. You know, Peter thought he would and very quickly found out he wouldn't. And then God did a work with him and he did. But you know, I don't necessarily think we have to think about that because this is a parable. So Jesus is using a parable to talk about a king and fighting and all of those things. But Jesus is saying that if we want to be his disciple, then we really need to think through the cost of that decision. 
not get caught up in the buzz, but think through whether it is worth it. Are we willing to give up our old ways of life and follow Jesus? Is Jesus really worth it? And I think these are good questions for all of us to think through and to think through, not just once when we make a decision to follow Jesus, but continually. Discipleship is a continual decision. Is it really worth it? And Jesus communicates, so basically what he says is, don't just follow me because, you know, it's a new in thing, but first think of the cost of what that decision will be. And that's challenging, isn't it? Anyone find that challenging? Yeah? I find it hugely challenging. I think it really challenges our kind of 21st century individualistic, life is about me and what I want way of living. It is countercultural. Uh, and maybe it's something that we're not used to hearing. Maybe it sounds strange to us that Jesus would ever say anything like this. So that's what Jesus is saying. Uh, but let's look at why. Why is Jesus saying these things? Is Jesus just a bit of a killjoy? Is Jesus kind of trying to ruin the party? There's this great thing going on and Jesus just wants to bring a bit of a downer on it all. Um, he likes to upset people. Well, of course not. Jesus knows exactly what he is doing when he shares these words. Jesus is thought through and knows what he's saying. And I want to share three reasons. I think there might be more, but at least three reasons why Jesus brings these challenging words to the people that he's speaking to here, but also to us in our day as well. So the first reason I think Jesus brings these words is because of the crowds. In verse 25, it says that great crowds followed Jesus. Now, it's a fact that Jesus never, ever struggled to pull a crowd. Jesus never struggled to get a crowd. I think we sort of, in the church, can get a bit obsessed with numbers. We sort of want to know, you know, you go to often leadership, you know, kind of different leaders, church leaders getting together. It's a little bit less of this in these recent years, but certainly when I started, it was like, how big's your church? How big's your church? You know, we kind of, is our church bigger than the church down the road? Well, that church down there's got a big crowd, so they must be doing better than this church, and numbers is a big thing. You might have felt that with our, you know, lower numbers on a Sunday morning during the pandemic, you know. We, we kind of get obsessed with, um, with numbers. But I remember someone saying to me that God never struggles to draw a crowd. You know, you raise a couple of people from the dead, you heal some life debilitating diseases, and you'll have an instant crowd. I can guarantee you. So Jesus was often followed by huge crowds of people. And yet Jesus never trusted himself to the crowds. He never trusted himself to the power and the influence. And often he was actually suspicious of the crowd. In John 6, a crowd comes and they want to make him king. They think, yes, this is the man, let's make him king. And what does Jesus do? He goes and hides himself in a mountain. Or in John 2, it says that Jesus did not entrust himself to the crowd because he knew what was in man. I believe that Jesus loved to reach and preach to large crowds. He clearly did it very, very often. But he never founded his ministry, and he certainly never founded his legacy on the work of a crowd. We know that crowds can be so fickle. We've seen some of that, unfortunately, in the crazy scenes following the England football team loss. 
You can have, you know, celebrities, sport, all of these things. The crowd is with you. They love you. And then the next moment, they've gone, turned against you or disappeared entirely. You can be a superstar one day and the villain the next. So Jesus sees these large crowds and he turns to them and he gives some teaching that he's probably going to send a large amount of them away. How challenging is that? How brave is that? How confident is that? Just to say, I see all this crowd, but actually I'm not going to work to keep the crowds. I'm going to try and send some of these people away. And that is because Jesus was not trying to build a fan club. Jesus was not basing his ministry on building this big following of fans. Jesus is all about making disciples. Jesus knew that a whipped up crowd will never change anything in life. And we've seen that many times. You know, you can have, I was thinking about the, um, the protest against the Iraq war. You know, over a million people turned up to protest. It went ahead. Mass crowds have very little power in reality. We see that a crowd can be here today, gone tomorrow. And so Jesus would never base his ministry and the work of the kingdom of God on a crowd. Instead, what he would do is take 11 faithful disciples and shape them to change the world. You know, after Jesus' ministry, after all of his healings, He's speaking, he's you know, fed thousands and thousands, he'd healed hundreds, maybe thousands of people. He'd been welcomed into Jerusalem with this vast storm and of praise and all of these things. How many people were there at Pentecost waiting for the kingdom to come? 120. After all of those, you think about how many people's lives were impacted, how many people were healed, how many people were fed. 120 people were faithful. At that point, just 120 people. And yet it was that 120 people who through their discipleship, through their commitment to the kingdom, would eventually be the people that began a movement that we're still here thousands of years later following. It's incredible. So Jesus says to the crowd, really, it's great that you're here. It's wonderful that you want to hear the, yeah, the teachings of the kingdom of God and all that. We say that to everyone. Yeah, it's wonderful that you're here. But do you really want this? Are you serious about this? Don't just play the game. Are you kidding yourself about it? And that leads on to the final mini parable that Jesus gives in this small section. And Jesus basically says, there's no point in having salt if it isn't salty. And um, there's a little bit of scientific discussion out there if you want to research this can salt lose its saltiness was it to do with how salt was gathered at the time all these kind of things but in reality the principle the eternal reality that Jesus is trying to communicate remains the same however you interpret the science of those words if you have salt that isn't salty then it ain't good for nothing if you have a follower of Jesus who isn't really willing to follow Jesus then it isn't really good for anything. If a follower of Jesus is concerned and worried about their own lives, their own ideals, their own ambitions, their own ways, and not about Jesus and his kingdom, then actually it's just like salt that has lost its saltiness. And that leads us on to the word that Jesus used. And you could do a whole preach on this word, but I won't because we're coming to the end of our time. Jesus uses a word that we don't use that often today. 
And it says, therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And the word renounce means to separate from or say goodbye to or give up something. You know, if someone renounces their throne, they separate themselves. If a royal renounces a throne, they separate themselves from that throne. You see, being a disciple of Jesus is about separating ourselves from our old lives. It means giving up our old life and finding life in Christ. And when we give up, we surrender. We say, I give up. I give up trying to control my own life. I give up being in charge. I give up my own ambitions and comfort and ways in order to follow after Jesus. And Jesus goes straight for the jugular in his examples. Our parents, our heritage, our children, the next generation, our legacy, even our very lives. Following Jesus is about separating ourselves from all of that, letting go of it in ourselves and our own control over it and our own ambitions for it, and then finding it anew, finding it again in Christ. So what does that mean for us today? Well, I think that we've got to ask ourselves some tough questions. You know, it's great to be here. We want, you know, it'd be great to have a thousand people in this church, wouldn't it? We'd love that. That'd be amazing. Two thousand people in this church would be amazing. And there's nothing wrong with that, of course. But if we're just here for the spectacle, if we're just here for the good times, when everything's going well, then we have to ask ourselves, are we a Jesus fan? We kind of like the things Jesus does. Or are we a disciple? Have we really weighed up and thought about the cost? The cost of following Jesus. The cost of renouncing our old life, our old ambitions, our old dreams, our old ways. Our own kingdom in order to live in the kingdom of God. So firstly, let's ask ourselves these tough questions. They are tough. But the good news is, well that's good news. But the second bit of good news is that although Jesus gives this teaching to his disciples, his disciples themselves so often got this wrong. You know, all of the disciples abandoned Jesus. After hearing this teaching, all of the disciples abandoned Jesus when the toughest question was asked of them. Still, Jesus called them to himself. He didn't count them out. Peter, we know famously, denies him three times after he hears this. But still, Jesus calls him to himself and restores him. We know that the disciples, James and John, were so often thinking about their own glory, their own greatness, all that God would do in their life. And yet still, Jesus called them to follow him. Even Paul, who wrote a whole load of the New Testament, says that he struggles to do what Jesus really wants him to do. And yet he has influenced more people's lives today, probably more than anyone else other than Jesus. So this is not about being perfect. Don't hear this message and think, well, that's me out. This is not about being perfect. And I don't think, as I said before, it's really about thinking, would I be willing to give up my life for Jesus? You know, I'm not sure that's that helpful, really. But it is a message about counting the cost, about realizing that a life following Jesus is about a life following Jesus. It's about separating ourselves from our old ways and finding our life in Jesus. Of course, as with many things, it's a gradual process. 
It doesn't all happen in one go. We gradually give as the disciples did. We give our lives gradually to him and to his kingdom. But there is a cost and we need to think about that cost. Yeah, do the band want to come back up? Just um, So just take a moment now, maybe close your eyes, wherever you are, if you're at home, in the building. I wonder what the cost is for you. Perhaps for some of us, Jesus is challenging us about our own material possessions. Yeah, the thought of renouncing whatever it is, the things that we own, the things that we have. Maybe our own material possessions, we need to think about, you know, are we willing, have we counted that cost if Jesus calls us to lay them down, give them up, give them away? Our money, maybe our money is an issue. We follow God with everything, but we really need to keep our money as our own. Maybe it's about particular relationships. Maybe there's relationships in our lives that God wants to put his finger on. Are we willing to follow Jesus in those? Maybe it's about our own goals, our own ambitions in life. Maybe it's about our comfort. God, I'll follow you, but I really need to be comfortable. Are we willing to renounce that? Or maybe it's simply our pride in saying that we've got things wrong and we need to admit that. Are we willing to count the cost of what it means to follow Jesus, give up control, give up our own ways and follow him? Before I pray and hand back to the team, I want to finish with a little parable of my own. Just to get us thinking and maybe see this in a different way. I shall read this short story. There's once a man who desperately wanted to go on an adventure. He lived in a comfortable small house near the foot of a vast mountain range. He longed to see the view from the top of the mountain, to breathe in the air and walk on the heights of that mountain range. One day he decided he would make the journey, take the risk and head up the mountain. He packed everything that he needed, food for the trip, his climbing boots, even a flare in case he got into trouble, and excitedly, he headed out. As he crossed the field that led towards the mountain path, he suddenly realised that he had forgotten his torch. What happens if it gets dark, he thought to himself. I know, I'll head home, spend the night there, and get going again in the morning when I have a torch. Back he went and slept a comfortable night in his bed. The next day he got up, packed his stuff, including his torch, and headed out again. He reached the start of the mountain path and began the steady incline that led up to the side of the mountain. After an hour or two of walking, his feet began to rub against the side of his shoes. Oh no, I haven't got any cream to relieve my feet if they get sore, he thought to himself. If I head home now, I'll get back just in time for nightfall. I can pick up some uh, cream and head out in the morning. And so he headed back, and just as he thought, he got home just as the sun set behind his small, comfortable house. A third time, the man headed out. This time, he had his torch and his cream. Along the incline of the path, he walked, ready for his big adventure. Suddenly, just as the steady incline became a climb, he remembered that he had left a lamp burning in his home. Oh no, he thought. What if the lamp falls over and my house catches fire? I'll have nowhere to live. And so hurriedly he made the journey back home, rushing over the fields that led back to his house. 
These same kinds of things seem to happen over and over again. One time he forgot his pillow, another time insect repellent, and another time he had arranged for some friends to come over, so he had to cook them a meal. After a number of attempts, he decided to miss a day heading up the mountain as his legs were getting tired. He missed a few more here and there, and eventually his attempts became less and less frequent. Needless to say, This man never did reach the top of those mountains, see the view, or breathe in the air. But he liked to think that at least he tried. Jesus says that we're to count the cost of following him. And I want to encourage you, at the end of our time together today, don't miss out on the journey. Don't miss out on the journey, the adventure that Jesus has for you. Yes, of course, it can be tough. It is tough. Those of you who have walked it and walking it know that it is tough, but it is the journey of a lifetime. Let's just pray together before we hand back to the team. Jesus, we know that your words bring life. They bring life. And sometimes they are words that are warm and we love to hear them just wash over us. And other times they feel like a slap around the face, Lord. And sometimes it feels that way. But Lord, we know that you are the good doctor and that all that you do is good. And so my prayer, Father, is for all of us, including myself, that we would not miss out on the adventure that you have called us to because we worried about our pillow or our friends or even our family, Lord, but that we would count the cost, whatever cost it is that we're, we have at that time, and that we'd follow you. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon from Humblecote Christian Centre. For more information about who we are, what we believe and how you can get involved, check out our website at www.humblecotechristiancentre.org.uk.